This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. We're back with another special episode brought to you by the Northern Pulse Growers Association. Hopefully, you caught last week's with Tim McGreevy and our intercropping panel, but if you haven't, make sure you go check those out. These episodes are serving as a bit of a countdown to the NPGA annual convention, which is happening this month. It's virtual, and we'd love for you to attend January 19th, 20th, and 21st. Head over to northernpulse.com to register for that now. These special episodes like this one today were recorded at the NPGA Montana Pulse Day virtual event back in November. There was really some fantastic information shared, and I'm glad we can bring some of it to you via this podcast. Today, we dive deep into a topic that we really haven't discussed at all on this podcast, which is equipment. Paul Canning leads the panel. He's the Montana Pulse Crop Committee vice chair and a producer from Flaxville, Montana. Paul will be facilitating this detailed conversation with a few panelists. Lowell Harris, service manager at Torgerson's. Phil Moody, store manager at Frontline Ag. James Newman, service manager at Hoven Equipment. And Mike Jose, store manager at CMB Operations. Pull out a pen and paper. I think you're gonna learn a lot from this one. I'll turn things over to moderator, Paul Canning. So I wanna introduce our panelists. First up is uh, Lowell Harris. He's with uh, Torgerson's LLC, and uh, they're kind of located in uh, from southwest Montana up through central Montana, and a lot of great dealerships there. Next on our panel is Phil Moody with Frontline Ag Solutions, and uh, again, they cover an area from southwest Montana up through the central portion of the state with some great locations. James Newman is a service manager for Hoven Equipment Company, and uh, they're located in Lewistown and Great Falls. Thanks for joining us here today, James. And then uh, Mike Jose, who uh, runs the Culbertson store for uh, CNB Operations. I want to specifically thank Mike. We did a late addition to add him onto our panel, and he's been absolutely fantastic. And I know he's going to share some uh, great insight with us today. So, uh, Regarding equipment, when we're seeding pulses with an air seeder, can you gentlemen talk to us about any precautions that we need to take in order to make sure that there's no mechanical seed coat damage to that seed when it's moving through the metering system or getting distributed through the tower system on our air seeders? And uh, I guess we'll start with James. Do you want to address that one for us first? Sure. Yeah, uh, care of the seed is a priority when we're, when we're getting that seed into the ground. Everything from gentle handling of it out of the truck and getting it into the seed cart. We can, uh, Morris Air Girls have the ability to have a, a conveyor loading uh, system from truck to cart. We can also uh, do a good job of handling the seed out of the metering system. Morris's flat fan dividers on the drill help us to get that seed from the cart to the opener without the seed bouncing against the seed tower. I have some producers with the uh, New Holland drills and the old flex coil drills who will add a rubber pad to the top of their seed tower to give it a little bit of cushion when that seed gets into the distribution towers. And taking care to, to balance your air and your seed rate when we're seeding two and a half to three bushels per acre of peas, 
it takes a lot of air to move that product along with the fertilizer. So we have to control our ground speed too to make sure that we don't try to put too much product through and, and, and run out of air. So just uh, there are ways to take care of that seed and get it into the ground without uh, scarring that seed coat, which helps us ultimately seed less pounds per acre because we're getting better seed into the ground and gets us a better germination of that seed. So, James, you mentioned that uh, some growers are adding some rubber to the top of their tower to help prevent any damage to that. Is that something they're just doing on their own, like this is a farmer engineered, or is it an aftermarket kit that they're getting? So, um, it was introduced to me by a grower who has a, another uh, a seed grill that's actually manufactured in Canada, and word of mouth got around. So, neighbors of his wound up just doing a farmer fix, uh, something that they came out of the farm shop to just add some cushion to that seed tower. Uh, I don't know of this coming from New Holland as a factory option. Okay, thanks. Lowell, any tips on on how to set up our air seeder and uh, make sure that uh, we're not farming germination? Sure, yeah. I mean, like uh, James said, obviously it starts with getting it into the cart conveyor auger is definitely the place to start with that as far as like with the borgo drill you know uh seems like you know with the augers the metering augers you have a steel auger they also offer a poly auger which seems to be a little less uh, abrasive to the uh, seed itself when it's coming out of the tank um, and then obviously airspeed you know you don't want more airspeed than you have to have um, on, on your airlines, you know, avoid sharp bends, of course, normal air drill stuff. The straighter the path we can give that seed, the better it's going to be and less damage it'll get. Double shoot works well, too, and then you're not trying to combine quite as much uh, all that product into one one shoot, and you can control your air stream a little better. So the newer case carts and New Holland carts, their metering system, they've got a soft you know, pretty soft rubber uh, meter rolls, which seems to be a little more gentle the way it, it drops it into the airstream. Those do work well also. Thanks, Lowell. All right, Phil, uh, you're up next. Any uh, hints or tips for our growers? All good comments so far. Um, the only other thing I'd add is using the largest sized tooth sprocket in your meter housing itself to get that product through the tank. You know, obviously it's gotta be able to meet the rate you're, you're needing, but if we can use the, a bigger tooth, there's less contact there as it goes through that meter housing and gets into your primary tubes. Thanks, Phil. Anything to add there, Mike? Uh, not really. I would agree with everyone in what they said, uh, especially Phil, making sure that your uh, meter roller is sized properly. Uh, sometimes that might be a fit where uh, running less product out of two uh, tanks um, and that's where the the new C650 and C850 carts would come into play where you've got more capacity so you don't have to stop and fill all the time. The other thing we found is is to possibly slow down. I know that's tough for everyone to do in the spring because we want to get as much done as we can but going faster just means we have to dump more product in there which can cause more damage so Typically on our farm uh, seeding peas, we typically slow down a mile to a mile and a half an hour compared to uh, other products that we're seeding. 
Yeah, that's a great tip also, Mike. I'll tell you, I put in some faba beans about four years ago and decided that I was going to go as fast as humanly possible and put that baby in road gear and put them in. And uh, I learned real quick that that absolutely doesn't work. You're absolutely right. Slow down. Uh, so I, I guess I didn't ask you gentlemen in advance, so my apologies. I don't know uh, which of you sells or services rollers, but you know, once we get that seed in the ground, then the next thing we get to do is do some rolling to make sure we're not eating a bunch of rocks. And um, I guess I'm looking for some tips on what's the best way to operate that roller so that we're embedding those rocks the best. You know, is it speed? Is it soil conditions? What do we need to do to make sure that uh, that we're not growing rocks out there in addition to our pulses? And I'll just open that up to anybody here. I don't, because again, I forgot to ask in advance who's selling rollers. Um, as far as speed goes, you know, that's so many variables, uh, you know, with ground conditions and rocks. I see guys typically run somewhere in the 10 mile an hour speed, but Again, that that does vary a lot, and we seem to have the best luck to roll as soon as you can behind the drill. Um, don't wait; just get in there after it while the soil's still soft. And you know, if you get a rain in ahead of it, that can cause you problems. Challenge up here on the Rocky Mountain front, where we're in, in glacial soils with a lot of rock. <laughs> Maybe the main thing you can do to be uh, increase the effectiveness of your rolling is do it when soil conditions are right. If you can roll when, when the soil is a little mellow and there is a little moisture in the ground so those rocks have the ability to go down, certainly is key. You know, if you're trying to roll terribly dry soil and that, that soil's hard, uh, then rocks just don't want to get down in there. And there's only so much you can do with a roller. You know, at some point, if your rocks are too big, you're, you're going to have to devise a strategy to pick them. Um, otherwise, they just wind up being a, a pain to you later when you're harvesting. So we had a question come in uh, regarding air seeders. So I want to back up a little bit here into some air seeders. And the question is, what is the most common problem that causes inconsistent seed spacing when using an air seeder? Uh, so I guess the question is, you know, is that seeds moving through our, our tower and getting distributed? What can cause inconsistencies in how the distribution happens for seed spacing within a, a row? Phil, do you want to tackle that one for us? I guess my first thought would just be consistent ground speed, giving that machine time to compensate for your ground speed. You know, as long as, you know, your number of towers are your distribution towers are set up consistently so you're not trying to have some towers with 10 tubes versus, versus others with six or seven so keeping those secondary towers consistent you know you could potentially have you know depending on if you're treating separately you know prior to putting it in the cart or if you're treating going into the tank we've seen that cause some issues where, you know, that product is still fairly wet as it's trying to go through that tank. Um, you could have bridging issues. If anybody else wants to weigh in, they sure can. Uh, I'll add one thing. Um, this is kind of, I guess, in a general thing, but but make sure you got the right meter rolls or, or augers or whatever. 
I know specifically with the, the newer case carts, you know, if you try to turn those meters too slow, it'll actually stall and you don't get a consistent feed rate. So just make sure your size properly is on your rollers. Yeah, Phil and Lloyd, you guys are right on. Uh, good comments. I do have a couple of producers who add talc to their uh, their crop when they're filling the drill and they just run a little talc through when conditions are right that that things sort of stick in those drills when they're trying to run. So I haven't had any experience with that uh, personally in the field, but just something that I've heard. I don't know if any of you also are, are familiar with that too. I haven't heard of the talc in our particular area, but the only other thing I find is that maybe the newer hydraulically driven meter rollers are you know, a little more consistent with delivering product to the airstream versus the old mechanical style. So that should help a little bit with seed spacing. Okay, gentlemen, look, you know that uh, when we're growing pulses, we spend a lot of time in our sprayer, especially if you're growing some chickpeas and get to do uh, multiple fungicide applications. Sprayers probably get more hours than anything else on the farm, it seems like. So what are the common things you see farmers failing to do to maintain that sprayer? We spend a lot of money on these sprayers. Uh, we want to get the most amount of hours that we can out of them. So what are some things that maybe you see farmers fail to do to make sure that uh, they're getting a good return? And I'll turn it over to Mike. Do you want to share some sprayer expertise with us? Uh, of course, multiple times spraying over all these pulse crops. Uh, when you're in a self-propelled sprayer, the ride is so much better. And I assume that's what most growers are, are doing at this point in time. Maintenance-wise, I mean, if the airbags on the system or the, the ride of the boom, that should uh, keep them in good shape. Probably the biggest lack of maintenance that we see is producers not changing gear oil into hubs. It's something that doesn't cost all that much. It does take a little bit of time, kind of a two-person job, unless you want to jump in and out quite a few times to get the plug in the right position. But many sprayers will go way more hours than they should to change that hub oil. And uh, that can cause big expense in the future. The, the cost to change that hub oil is, is really not all that great. So we, even though the book may say to do it 500 hours, we may recommend to do it at least yearly. It's cheap maintenance as far as we're concerned. Absolutely. Great tip, Mike. Thanks. Uh, James, anything uh, you want to add with regard to uh, sprayer upkeep? Uh, just that uh, one of the things that seems to benefit the sprayer, the machine, is to rinse it off uh, after uh, a round of application. I know certainly when we have producers uh, putting on liquid fertilizer, with their field sprayers, whatever the crop is, to rinse that caustic fertilizer off before it can begin the rust cycles uh, and, and do damage to your machine. And it's beneficial too when you're out uh, spraying the fungicides to, I think, just rinse those machines off uh, so that the, that chemical material doesn't start deteriorating the paint on your sprayer leading to more rust. Yeah, that's something that I know I don't do uh, very well, James. So thanks for the reminder. <laughs> I need to, I need to pay a little more attention there. Uh, Lowell, talk to us about the Patriot and what we need to be doing to it. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, like Mike said, that that planetary gear oil, that's that's a good point there. Other than that, you know, I mean, basic maintenance, just grease, you know, those knees on the Patriot, they they move constantly and there's bushings in there that you got to keep greasing them and that'll pay you off in the end. You know, they're pretty maintenance free otherwise, though. And Phil, uh, any tips for us on sprayers? I think everybody's hit a lot of the major issues on the head. The only thing I'd add is keeping an eye on your hydraulic lines throughout the machine. When one of those decides to go, that's a pretty quick fluid transfusion. So just keep an eye on hydraulic lines and then on the deer sprayer, keeping an eye on the, the drive line between the engine and the hydrostats, you know, just checking for play in there. Those are the, probably the top three downtime causing issues as is the planetaries, hydraulic hoses, or that driveline. Okay, uh, so Bill, a lot of us use our sprayer to uh, apply a desiccant for harvest prep on our, on our pulse crops, but some growers swath their crops instead, and they still have a swather that they're using. It does a great job for them, obviously. So what tips do you have for swathing short crops, especially like lentils, to ensure that we're getting those bottom pods on that plant. How do we operate that thing with the angle or settings to make sure that uh, we're doing a good job swapping? Yeah, uh, it's not something we do a lot of here in the Great Falls area, but I'm just thinking out loud, uh, make sure that you've got the float pressure on that header set well to where it, it's staying on the ground as much as it can, maybe playing with your your guard angle a little bit to make sure you're getting it down as low as you can. Biggest thing is planning ahead. If you are if you know you're gonna swath a lentil crop, make sure that you've, one, picked as many rocks as you can ahead of time and make sure it's rolled before you're gonna do that. James, I guess you've never put an air bar on a swather. Tell us how to run that dadgum swather so we're doing a good job. Well, I guess just uh, fundamentals of swathing crop no matter what the crop is, but, and I, I believe it to be true with lentils or peas as well, um, your draper speed has a lot to do with how that crop will lay in the windrow. Uh, adjusting your draper speed so that the crop comes in and lays in a nice windrow and, and the left and right sides cross a little bit so that when you come under it with the combine with the pickup header, that that crop picks easy and that it's laying on top of the standing stubble so that a little air can get under it to help with drying. It all starts matching the ground speed and your draper speed together so that you get that crop to lay. With lentils and shorter crops, it's going to be on the deck. Uh, so Phil, you're right on uh, when you're running your, your combine pickup header right on the ground. You know, dealing with those rocks when in advance, sure, important. All right, so we all know that harvesting pulses can be challenging, and we've kind of talked about uh, cutting them off the ground with swathers, but you know, if we're in our combine, it's just as challenging. And a flex draper header is obviously uh, the, the most common header system that pulse growers use, and we know that it needs to be set properly and maintained properly in order to function the best. James, can you talk to us about uh, how to operate that header to get all of the crop, but not get all of the rocks? 
Yeah, certainly. Adjusting your flotation of your header uh, is is pretty important. Uh, making sure, I, I Phil alluded to this, uh, you know, making sure that you can run down on the deck without uh, being too heavy and having your float right so you can come up and over those uh, occasional gopher mounds or badger holes or things. The Flex Draper uh, has certainly been awesome for this type of crop harvesting. Uh, we put Macdon heads on all of our combines. You know, having those heads, the flexible portion adjusted correctly so that left and right sides uh, float with the ground uh, the way you want them to. And you certainly uh, pay attention to your your guard angle by, by your header tilt uh, forward and back. Just... Uh, the technology in these in these flex drapers has come a tremendous long way in the last 20 years, even the last 10 years. So a very, very nice product to use for pulse growers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are your tips on uh, operating a, a flex draper? And that's for uh, Mike. Do you have any tips for us there? Just like James said, uh, to make sure that uh, your your sensors are properly calibrated and so that the, the float pressure is, is where you want it. You want it as uh, light on the ground as possible, but yet heavy enough so that the cutter bar is, is, uh, is picking all the product that's there. You want to get as much in the header uh, to keep it uh, hopefully there from there going into the combine. Probably the biggest thing I see is customers running their pickup reel too fast sometimes in relation to their ground speed and therefore kind of knocking the pods off of the plant. You just need to properly or gently just have it just nice and sweeping action off the cutter bar. So I think that's one place that uh, customers don't uh, watch or adjust as much as they maybe should. Okay, thanks Mike. Uh, Lowell, what are your thoughts on uh, operating the, and maintaining the draper header? Yeah, so obviously we we deal with McDonald predominantly. Phenomenal header, best there is as, as far as contouring the ground, that you know, for our functions. You know, uh, it's probably also one of the most commonly misunderstood and, and neglected pieces of equipment because if it's not set right, adjusted correctly it's it's not either going to take rocks you're going to you're going to wear out the header prematurely whatever um specifically you know i on a flex draper when i'm i'm setting the mcdon you should be able to go out to the corner of the header lift each corner you should have a 75 to 100 pound lift if you're in flex mode and it, you just set it down and cut height on the ground you should be able to walk out to each corner and, and again, lift the corner off the ground. And then when you let go of it, it should drop back down and set firmly on the ground. If that's not happening, then there's adjustments that need to be done. But yeah, lighter is better usually. Okay, uh, Phil, I'll uh, turn to you with the next question. Since you brought up uh, air bars before, can you share some insight into, you know, what's your opinion on what works better, an air reel or a pickup reel or a combination? What's the best setup to have there for our reel? If a producer was going to do a large amount or a lot of acres of the pulses, I'd recommend, of course, a pickup reel is standard on most or all flex 
draper units now, but I'd look at adding a, an AWS or a Crary wind reel system on the 40 to 45 foot plus heads. I kind of lean towards that Crary because it'll offer a twin tube option. So it's putting a pressured air on each end of the tube and it meets in the middle. Uh, it equalizes that pressure more evenly across that whole tube. But I think especially in a lentil crop, that can help pay for itself fairly quickly if you're doing large acres. Uh, Mike, what's your opinion on that? So uh, Phil says it'll help pay for itself. Are farmers going to see a return? Is it worth it to spend that money on an air reel? Uh, most definitely, yes, specifically with lentils. Sometimes on peas, if they're standing up good, we haven't seen a, a huge benefit with the air bar or an air uh, reel with the pickup reel. Uh, but on lentils, uh, there's a payback on it. You can cut with two different headers in the field, one with an air bar and one with not, and, and do some calculations and see what we are missing and uh, definitely come up with a payback. So I've had producers in our area tell us uh, two bushel to the acre. Well, if, if they're 22 cents or 20 cents, I mean, it doesn't take long to uh, pay for a $20,000 air bar. And Lowell, would you say the same, that it's uh, worth that investment in an air system? I mean, the, the air systems work. That being said, the, the new McDonald header, the, the new style reel that they have in production here the last couple of years, I've had several guys say that have had air bars before and, and then had this new McDonald reel. They say they don't see any difference. The, the tines are so much closer together that they – uh, seem to be taken care of, you know, obviously lentils is the one that's that's tricky. Um, we've had really good luck with without ever even running an air bar on, on that new header. Hey, I like it. I like hearing uh, some varied opinions on it. That's why panels are so great. So, uh, James, I guess you get to be the tiebreaker then. Do we need to go buy an air bar or not? Well, um, I'm not going to be a very good source of information on this because I don't know if I can name a single one of my uh, customers who's operating one. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be a good answer on this. I do share Lowell's comments that the pickup reels on the MacDon heads, uh, if you follow what Mike said of keeping close track of your reel speed and keeping close track of how you clock the times, how they come into the, uh, the sickle bar and let go of the crop, our producers are having fantastic success uh, with the MacDon head. You know, yesterday we had uh, a great panel of buyers to talk about what the quality impacts are on our crops if they're cracked or chipped, if we've cracked that seed coat. And so that's a big challenge for us as growers to make sure that we're not causing damage as that crop's progressing through our combine. Uh, Lowell, let's start with you. What are your recommendations on rotor speeds? How do we make sure that we're not chipping the seed, but it's going fast enough so that uh, we're not slugging it up? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, just like any discussion about combine settings, every everybody's got a different opinion. So, uh, and most of them are right. But anyway, <laughs> um, what we find, you know, obviously you don't want any more rotor speed than you have to have. Finding lentils about 600 seems to be pretty good. Peas around that 440, chickpeas around the 550. But yeah, at the end of the day, you just gotta see what you got in the tank and, and work with it from there. 
but yeah, rotor speed on pulse crops is obviously generally on the low side of most crops. James, you want to talk to us about rotor speeds and, and talk to us also about uh, your opinion on concaves. I know a lot of guys will go after some aftermarket concaves. Any suggestions you have there on what the good concave system is to use? Sure. Yeah, uh, uh, Lowell's exactly right. Uh, rotor speed is, is important and uh, every combine has a sweet spot to harvest in. Uh, no matter uh, what the crop is. So, uh, you know, having the operator take the time to uh, look at what's in the tank, uh, make adjustments as necessary, run that thing as soft and as gentle as you can, but still get the job done. On the New Holland Combine, we'll run the two-speed rotor gearboxes in the low speed and then be on the higher range of RPM in that low speed. That'll get us into that uh, 450 to 550 RPM range on the rotor speeds, and which allows us to keep the drive belts tensioned uh, nicely. So that if we do get a green slug, um, that belt will hold, and and we really haven't seen any problems. We've had great success. Most of my uh, New Holland Combine operators are are installing a round bar concave uh, for the pulse crops. Just, you know, taking the time to swap the concaves out really turns that machine into a fantastic bee machine. And uh, it's worth the effort to do that and allows us to, to treat that crop and get it threshed out as gentle as we can uh, from the rotor through the concaves. Thanks, James. Uh, Phil, do you have any suggestions on uh, rotor settings or concave settings or concave uh, brands that we should be using? Well, to kind of play off everybody else's comments, it's keep things as slow as possible. And then as far as rotor clearances go, I tend to lean towards staying as open as possible and then closing it back down as needed. If we do have unthreshed pod issues, we've got a lot of guys that'll uh, do a mix of concaves. They could do, say, a small wire or a large wire up front in a deer machine and then run round bar in the back. Some producers run all round bar. Something I'm starting to see more of is aftermarket concaves, whether it's a Sunnybrook or a Condex, where you can run a combination of small holes or larger holes. And then the advantage there also being is that swapping those aftermarket concaves out is a little lighter work. Um, you, instead of having three concaves, you'd have six and then you can mix and match as needed depending on crops, especially with a pulse crop producer that may have to jump back and forth between starting, say, with winter wheat and then jumping into peas and then back into winter wheat again and, and switching crops even multiple times throughout the day or a week. Um, the aftermarket system seems to be something that guys are leaning towards. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Mike, I, I'll start with you on this next question that came in. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe CNB is a, is a, a dealer for the Shelbourne Reynolds stripper headers. I might be wrong about that. Do you have any experience or have any growers that have experience with uh, using a stripper header, specifically in pulse crops? Do you think they'd be uh, gentler or better to use in pulse crops? Uh, yes, yeah, CNB is a, a Shelbourne dealer. 
Uh, if anybody's looking for a Shelbourne header, uh, uh, the early bird gets the worm. Every time we go to try to get one for next year, about this time of the year, uh, they're typically sold out unless a dealer has ordered some uh, stock machines or whatnot. We have a few customers running Shelbournes in the area, mainly for their small grains. I'm not aware of anybody using a stripper header for uh, peas or lentils, uh, soybeans, any of the legumes, flax. Uh, flax sometimes can be a real tough uh, one to cut with a sickle, depending on how it dries down and such. Uh, there's a couple of producers I know that have used the stripper header on flax and uh, works very well. Uh, here again, the settings and the adjustments, I personally have not been around the Shelbourne at all, so I, I don't know what's all required there. But getting to know those headers inside and out and, and the adjustments that are capable, I think, is the best in the long run and making sure they're set properly. Uh, just one other thing I want to add when it comes to making adjustments on a combine. I have a lot of customers that say, I did this, this, and this, and they'll, they'll change three or four items at a time, wondering why they didn't change anything in the grain tank. And we try to tell them to do one change at a time to see if it made a difference or not, and then go back and then change something else. So don't make three or four changes, make one at a time so we know whether it did the job or not. You're killing me here with all these recommendations to have patience and go slow. Uh, it's worth uh, repeating over and over again. We get in a rush, so thank you for that. Mike brought something up that'll maybe kind of lead me into our next question here. And uh, we'll start with Phil on this one. Uh, Mike talked about make one change at a time here on our settings, but combines are getting smarter and smarter. And now we have systems coming out where they're self-setting, right? We just tell that combine, here's what it is I'm cutting and here's how I want you to cut it. Unfortunately, uh, some of them don't have pulses really programmed into the software yet for those automated settings. When can we see things like peas or chickpeas being a, an option to work with the software there? It's something that the manufacturer keeps working towards. We ask them to, to work towards getting those automation settings pre-programmed into the machines as well. If that's something you really want to see, especially on the John Deere side, please take a minute to jump on Deere's website and send them feedback. Customer producer feedback has a lot more impact with the manufacturers than the dealer feedback does. So if you wanna see those settings move up the priority list, uh, please send that feedback to the manufacturer as well. But to spin off that, Deere has uh, automation settings that really make changing the machine settings easy for producers or operators of all experience levels. With Combine Advisor, a customer can tell the machine, hey, I'm seeing more foreign material in the tank, meaning straw or pods, leaves, things like that. And the machine will recommend settings um, and it's typically one at a time. And you can tell the machine to change itself. And then a couple minutes later, it'll ask, you know, did we do it right? And you can give the machine that feedback. And so you can really dial in the machine using those, those settings as well, uh, because we all know the conditions change throughout the day. And so, especially with a rotor machine, changes need to occur as things warm up and dry out throughout the day. Absolutely, conditions change. So Lowell, uh, this year I, I ran a red machine and uh, it was great to play with it. I got, you know, I tell that machine how to handle in it. And about every, 
I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, it was changing sieve settings, specifically pre-sieve settings were changing quite often. But I had to tell the combine that I was cutting corn because if I put in peas, you know, the software doesn't recognize it. And obviously this is geared towards the more common commodities, uh, soybeans, corn, wheat. But uh, when can we see pulses kind of included in the software there? Yeah, so like you said, you know, obviously the manufacturer's going to spend its dollars and resources in the commodities that are market share. Um, I did discuss this actually just the other day with uh, the combine specialist for North America uh, for Case IH, and and he did say, you know, peas, lentils, chickpeas, they are on their list. They're working through them. Peas will probably be the first one we'll see. Don't know if we'll see anything for next season, but they are working on it, and it is on the list. Okay, uh, James, so I had a neighbor who decided about halfway through harvest to go buy a brand-new yellow machine, and uh, he swears he can set that machine far better than that computer could ever do. Is that true or false? Well, it all begins. Uh, you know, the machine has... Uh, standard crop setting features in the monitor and you can just uh, tap the touch screen and choose uh, standard crop setting for for the crop you have. I'm hearing the same things that Lowell's hearing about uh, getting um, automated features, uh, the settings for the pulse crops. Uh, hopefully within the next couple of years we'll have them. But it all begins, uh, the operator needs to do a good job making sure that what he has in the hopper and making sure that what's being exited out the back of the combine is to his liking. You still need the human element there to make sure that what the combine is doing is suitable to you. Then you can engage the automation and the automation uh, will keep it there. The automation will keep the machine working the way you want it. So uh, yeah, sometimes if you just choose an automated crop setting, which is just programmed into the computer, uh, it might not do the best job for you. You still have to uh, have your hands on it and make sure it's right. Uh, The beauty of the automation is after that, after you get the combine working the way you want it for operations with multiple operators, uh, whether your wife or your son or your daughter uh, jumps into the seat of the machine to, to operate it, it now takes care of business. So you can just tell your operator to to just do a good, safe job of, of driving the machine, and it'll take care of itself as far as the settings. So here's a question I really want to discuss, and that's how to prevent burning up these machines when we're using them. So part of the reason why my neighbor bought a new machine is he just got nervous about his old one, and uh, and his wife is running it, and she was really nervous. And uh, it was a dry fall, so there was a lot of static buildup and a lot of combine fires out in our area, and I'm sure throughout a lot of the pulse-growing region here in the Northern Plains. So, Mike, we all have different ways, we think, to help prevent a, a fire. You know, we drag chains, we blow the combine off multiple times during the day to get rid of this dust. Uh, I've heard guys mixing up some Dawn dish soap in a spray bottle and spraying that on ledges. But I don't know, what do, you, what do you do or what have you heard other people do to prevent that static buildup and prevent fires? Well, that uh, is a good question. I, I think it's inevitable that when we cut these specialty crops that we do uh, 
lentils and peas and, and oil seeds, flax and safflower and sunflowers, they're, they're just susceptible to those kind of things. I think the things you covered, the old uh, theory of dragging a chain, we don't know that it does 100% of the job, but it, it definitely can help. Um, my personal opinion is if, if conditions are right, stop every couple hours and blow that machine off. Uh, the new combines have uh, that option, uh, air compressor and whatnot right on there. So you don't even have to have a service pickup in the field. We all know as we walk around our combines where the most susceptible places are for fine dust and, and things to build up. You know, those are the, the ones that we need to target first and, and keep things blowed off. As we all know, if, if a fire starts, if you can get it out, Quickly, uh, it, it can still cost you a lot of money. Wiring harnesses aren't cheap. And then uh, main thing is for the human safety, combines are replaceable, humans aren't. So I don't know that there's a specific answer that I have uh, for this problem. Biggest thing we do is is blow those machines off regularly to, uh, to keep that fine dust uh, away from the machine and the hot spots as we can. James, uh, any tips? Is there, is there a different pad we need to be using on our header so that we're not, uh, you know, that's always running against the ground? Is that where all this static's coming from or, or how are we building up static electricity on our machine? Yeah, the age old uh, problem since uh, way back. Uh, yeah, back to the flotation again on, on heads, making sure that we're as low as we need to be, but we're not running uh, hard. One of the things that, that I would add to the comments about uh, keeping the combines blown off real well, that's super important. But also um, for a lot of producers, if you can uh, get your hands on a laser temperature gun, the handheld temp gun, periodically through the day, I have producers who will walk around the machine and they'll temp the different bearings on different moving shafts. And basically what they're looking for is something that's odd. If you put your temp gun on a bearing that is has a temperature way above the rest, the other ones near it, you can sometimes spot a bearing that's on its way out before it completely goes out. You know, bad bearings start fires. Making sure that your sickle uh, sections and your sickle guards are adjusted properly so that you don't have hot spots in your sickle. You know, it starts way up front there. It's come out in this panel several times here where we talk about patience and taking caution and, and, and sometimes slowing down, uh, you know, just taking a good look at your machine. Uh, we urge producers to just walk around the machine every once in a while and just give it a good look. Most often, you're going to find those areas that are trigger a red flag in your mind. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, James. Uh, Lowell, I don't imagine you have much to add, but I'll give you an opportunity. Uh, any suggestions to growers on fire prevention? Sure. Um, I find that I think more of the fire issues is is actually from specifically too with pulse is from hot debris from the exhaust. Um, you know, these pulse crops tend to accumulate that fine dust on those exhaust systems and then that sits there and smolders and falls down gets in a pile somewhere and, and that's where the problems start um, there's been you know different companies uh played with different things you know things like ceramic coating exhaust um, has seemed to help not a cheap easy thing but um, there's been some 
another company I know I've heard about that is is looked at enclosing the turbo and the exhaust in a completely enclosed chamber with pressurized air through it, things like that. I mean, if, if, if we can keep that dust off the exhaust, it really seems to make a big difference. With the case, the new 50 series, you know, they've done a lot to reduce dust, um, sealing up that rotor chamber, keeping it cleaner, you know, uh, so just the basic things like, you know, keeping the dust going out the back of the machine instead of letting it accumulate across uh, seems to be a big help. I've, I've even played with things like taking an uh, air tube to like an air seeder tube and, and taking airflow from the fan and directed it to places that we know are predominantly where fires start. And that does seem to help. I don't know that I would say it, it's a cure-all, but, but there's things like that you can do too. Huge thank you to Paul Canning for moderating that panel. I think actually he should probably take over my job here on this podcast. He did such an outstanding job. Thanks also to panelists Lowell Harris, Phil Moody, James Newman, and Mike Jose. Really excellent job by all outstanding information. We have one more of these special episodes just like this from the event releasing later this week. Don't forget to register today for the Northern Pulse Growers Association annual convention happening January 19th through the 21st. You can get all the information and get registered over at northernpulse.com. We'll see you there.